I'm starting a new series today in the Psalms, which is really exciting. I love the Psalms. And I'm going to be looking at Psalm 40. So if you've got a Bible and you want to grab it, that's where we're going to be headed tonight. There are 150 Psalms in the Bible. And at their simplest level, Psalms are honest prayers. I think that's what they are. I might even go as far as saying that they're brutally honest prayers. If you spend any time in the Psalms at all, you'll begin to realise they're quite guttural. I don't even know whether that's a word, but I'm going to use it. And what I mean by that is it's from the gut, it's from the soul, it's being poured out. David writes, King David writes many of the Psalms and there's other writers as well, but we just see the whole range of emotions, the whole gamut of emotion. And there's a great quote by a guy called Eugene Peterson who wrote the message and he says this, as a pastor I was charged with among other things teaching people to pray. I've now found out my job, that's my job, teaching people to pray. Helping them to give voice to the entire experience of being human and to do it both both honestly and thoroughly. I found that it was not as easy as I expected. Help and thanks are our basic prayers. I think that's really true, isn't it? How many of you this week have been, help Lord, I need you, or thank, thanks Jesus that you sorted that out. But honesty and thoroughness don't come quite as spontaneously. Untutored, we tend to think that prayer is what good people do when they are doing their best. It's nice, that's what many people think about prayer, and I just don't think that is an image of what prayer should look like. I don't think that prayer was meant to be beige. You know, just that colour that you're like, wow, that really doesn't tell me anything of emotion or the soul of what's going on in the heart. And just praying these nice prayers to God, I don't think that's a picture. And we are not given that picture in the Bible. That is not what the Bible tells us. It's the means by which we get everything in our lives out before God. All of it. I don't know whether any of you have tried ever writing a psalm. It's quite an interesting experience when you're like, I am going to be like King David and I'm going to write my own psalm. And just what begins to come out on paper, it's a really profound thing. And um, some of you might want to try it, actually. But the, the psalms are raw and unedified emotion. They're anger, sadness, joy, praise, betrayal, thankfulness, desolation. We see it all. And at, do you know what? At times they're really painful to read. Because you're reading them thinking, wow, what is going on in your heart right now? But as we, te- as we spend time in them as, and as we meditate on them, they teach us how to pray. I think that's what they do. We're given almost a model of what prayer looks like. And as we begin to understand the Psalms and how they're written, then suddenly we begin to go, I know how to pray. That's what prayer looks like. They teach us how to be real before God. I think if we're not careful, we can be, there's something called the false self. And the false self is really this image that not only do we portray to other people, but it's further than that. It's the image that we portray to (laughs) ourselves. And so sometimes we don't get real. We don't even get real with ourselves. We can't bring ourselves to that emotion. And... If you look at the Psalms, what happens is they start with our situation. They start with what's going on in our life, the place where our hearts are, and then they move towards who God is. 
So let's start with where we are. And then there's this transition in the psalm because it moves from one of introspection into praise. It's like, oh, this is going on in my life. This is my circumstance. But God, you are amazing and you are all faithful and you are good and you are wonderful. And I praise you because you're worthy to be praised. And it's this transition that's going on. And that's really a picture of what happens in worship. Sometimes when we come into worship, I don't know about you, but you... Sometimes you're just straight into the presence of the Lord. Uh, But other times, you're just dealing with your stuff. In that first moment, you're like, I'm tired. I'm feeling a bit, I'm hot. I'm hungry. And these are are the things. Do you know what? I'm really hacked off. I've had a really rubbish day. Or other times, you're like, I've had an amazing day. This This is what happens. And then what happens is, as the glory of God comes, it changes. And it and suddenly our heart begins to praise and it begins to fix, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And suddenly in that moment, it shifts off of us. It shifts off introspection and it becomes about who the Lord is. This is the transition that is happening in the Psalms again and again as you read the different Psalms. They help us to remember God's faithfulness, his goodness, his lordship. They recognize our brokenness and our full and our fallenness and our very real heartfelt emotions, but they don't leave us there. They don't leave us. And there are songs of, uh, psalms or, or even songs of lament sometimes that are, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept for Zion. You know, it's like these moments of just pouring out, but there's that transition that happens. So I'm going to just be looking at the first five verses of Psalm 40 this evening. And so it says this. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, and he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. Put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed are those who make the Lord their trust, who do not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord, my God, are the wonders you've done, the things you've planned for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. Now, the original Hebrew doesn't read, actually, I waited patiently for the Lord. It actually, it literally leads, reads like this. I waited for, waited for the Lord. And there's a doubling of this word waited. And really, I've, I guess what I'm talking about this evening is waiting on the Lord. I waited and I kept on waiting and waiting and I kept on waiting for the Lord and waiting is really hard. Waiting's difficult. I believe that our culture finds waiting probably as hard as anything else because we demand and expect instant gratification, delayed gratification. I've read about it, it's painful. I prefer instant gratification. I want it, and I want it now. And that's what our culture's like. We've moved into this instant culture. Um, some of the older ones amongst you will remember something called Blockbuster. <laughs> Do any of you remember Blockbuster? Yeah, they were, they were the good days. You used to go down and spend about an hour just looking, what should I get on DVD? Now we just do it on the telly. We had to get out of the house. But, um, but my point is waiting is just generally something that we're not very good at. And I think that there are two primary methods that God uses to grow us to be and to look more like Jesus. Because 
God is always in the business of reshaping us and reforming us and bending us and changing us. That is the purpose of what's known as sanctification. Sanctification is to look more like Jesus. At the end of it, that we would grow through this life and bit by bit by bit, I would look more and you would look more like Jesus. That's what we're in the process of. We want to grow as people. And the two primary methods that God uses to reform and reshape humanity and us are pain and waiting. Those are the two biggest things that God uses. If you ask a Christian, when did you decide to really turn to God? Almost always, not always, but a lot of the time, it's as a result of pain or waiting. When did you grow most in your faith? When I was waiting. When we're in pain and when we're awaiting, we are forced to acknowledge that we are not in control of our destinies. In that moment, we realize, and it's a scary place to be. It's like, I am not in charge at all. That moment where we suddenly realize, I can't change it. It can be absolutely frightening. But then on the other side, what happens is at that point, we invite the Lord in and we realize, oh, it's going to be all right. I'm not in charge, but he's in charge. He's worthy of it all. We sang that over and over again. He's worthy of it all. It's during these periods of pain and waiting that God prizes open our hands. It's almost like he prizes them open. They're like this. And from some, whatever it could be, some addiction, something else that we've grasped onto, thinking that it's so important. And God's like, it's not important. Open your hands. And he invites us to turn to him and to follow him. In his book, Authentic Faith, Gary Thomas explains that most Christian growth is not the result of our response to the things that we initiate, although it is part of it, but most Christian growth is the result of things that are done to us by life and by God. Things that happen to us where we're put in a position of having to make a choice of whether or not to trust or whether or not to obey. God regularly keeps people waiting and God will not be rushed and his purposes will prevail. And it's really important that we realize that. You see it everywhere in the Bible. God made the children of Israel wait for 40 years in the desert. He told them what was gonna happen. He told them about the promised land. One day you will enter into this land, and we looked at this in Joshua. One day, but for 40 years, they walked around the desert waiting for the promised land. They waited and they waited. Yeah, they got there, but they waited. The nation of Israel had to wait for thousands of years before their long-promised Messiah came. As Christians, we're waiting for the return of Jesus, for our resurrection body. I'm really excited that one day I'm going to get a resurrection body. I've reached that age where I'm excited about that. It's going to be awesome, my resurrection body. Anyway. (laughs) Let's not go there for the moment. We're waiting for the restoration of this earth, a new heaven and a new earth. We're waiting. We hate to wait, and yet the Bible continually tells us that God will not be rushed. And one of the main methods that he uses to change us is that he makes us wait. Over the last couple of days, I've been walking the three peaks, and Ben Nevis, Scarfell Pike, and Snowden. And I just wanted to tell you, it wasn't my idea. But my mate, who's 40 and was having a little midlife crisis, decided that we needed to go on an adventure. And unfortunately, I got invited. Uh, no, do you know, I, had a, I actually had a really, really amazing time. But everything in me was not thinking it was going to be an amazing time. I was sitting there going, two and a half days with my friends. I've got three kids. I don't get out much. 
wow, we're climbing up three peaks. I could have thought of better things. But people get asked me, are you doing this for charity? It's like, no, I'm doing it for fun. And you, you will be pleased to know that every single one of the mountains that I walked up had no view from the top, just cloud. People are like, oh, it's been brilliant weather, hasn't it? I'm like, you're doing phenomenal. It's been so amazing. But actually, at the top of Ben Nevis, you can't see a thing. In fact, you couldn't see a thing at the top of Scarfell Pike. Actually, you couldn't see anything at Snowden either. So, yeah, probably amazing view. I mean, why do you walk up a mountain? <laughs> Just for the fun of it. Uh, anyway, the point that I'm making, after I actually had an incredibly profound time with Jesus, I had an amazing time with the Lord. Being out in creation is a wonderful thing because you just feel free. Like you're standing on the top of the mountain and it, make, it puts everything in perspective. But I was meditating on this verse. I waited patiently for the, for the Lord. And as I was walking up Scarfell Pike, I was asking the Lord, Lord, what does it mean to wait patiently? What does that even look like? How do you wait patiently? And I kept thinking, and so we had this moment, and I was thinking about this. And I thought that I was nearly at the top. And so what happened was I, I came over the top thinking it was the top to realize that it wasn't the top. And in fact, for the next hour, I spent the next hour thinking that everything that I came over was going to be the top in the mist, and it wasn't the top. And it reached this point where I began to chuckle. And so I had to start tricking myself, the next thing is not the top. You're on an everlasting journey. This is never going to end. Uh, and I was sweating by this point. But what happened was something began to shift in my, my thinking. And the Lord just began to speak to me. And he said, Do you know what? You know, this, I waited patient for the Lord. And he said, James, it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. We spend our life fixated on the destination. And I, and I have this in life when I meet up with people and I'm talking to them and they're, they're like, wow, you know, as soon as this thing sorts out, got this new job I'm going after, or as soon as I get into that new house, or do you know what, I just need that new relationship. And do you know what, fill in the blank, fill in the blank of whatever it is. If only this sorts, then that, that, is, that becomes the destination. And I felt the Lord just saying, Waiting patiently is realizing that it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. And what was so profound for me was not just this thinking about waiting patiently, but I just had this most precious time with the Lord walking up the mountain of companionship. There's this phrase that I've began to use that I'm sure I've nicked from somewhere, that the idea of what we're trying to achieve with Jesus is deep friendship. It's deep friendship, it's companionship in this life. And if we're always thinking about the destination, our prayers only ever become about where we're going or what God has to do in order to achieve something because I've got to get there. Suddenly what happened on the mountain was that I began to just love the fact that I was in companionship with the Lord walking up this mountain. It's like, this is amazing. And do you know what? I might have to be airlifted off by the end. But, but God was just speaking in this moment and I felt like the Lord saying, there is only one real destination and that's heaven. Before that, God is just growing us on the journey. And what happens as we begin to have this paradigm shift is that we begin to ask a different set of questions about life. 
So you start to ask these kind of questions rather than, Lord, what is it that you're going to do next? Or if only I can have this. And Lord, if you shift that, it's Jesus, where are you in this situation? Lord, show me where you are in the picture of my life. Where are you moving right now? God, what is it that you're doing? Jesus, what is it that you're trying to teach me? How do I wait well, Lord? Lord, I'm frustrated about this, but Lord, I want to be trusting in you and I want to be faithful. Lord, show me what you're doing. Sometimes it might even be, Lord, why am I feeling this crazy emotion? Because that's what we talk about in the Psalms is that often the beginning of a Psalm is just this outpouring of emotion from David. It's like a splurge onto the page. Oh, I'm feeling all of this. And then what happens is, Jesus, why am I feeling this emotion? What is it? What's it pressing on? What are you beginning to do? Can you see how the questions begin to change? Because we realize that it's about the journey, not about the destination. So just moving on, we move into verse two. We read about waiting for God when we're in the pit. I waited patiently for the Lord. And then it goes on in verse two. And he lifted me out of the slimy pit. I mean, that's a picture, isn't it? It's not just a pit, it's a slimy pit. And whenever I think about slime, I think about Ghostbusters. It was a slimy pit out of the mud and mire. Basically, it's grim. That's what it's saying. And he set my feet on a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. It's just this picture of Jesus lifting us out. He's like, you are in this pit and I'm going to put you on, on a foundation that is firm. I'm going to set your feet upon a rock. David doesn't tell us what this particular pit is. We have no idea. But from kind of surmising from David's life, because we've got so many incidents that we see across David's life, it could have been one of many different pits. It could have been his own sin after Bathsheba, after he's had this affair with Bathsheba, and he's suddenly gone into this crazy cycle, not only having an affair with Bathsheba, but getting Bathsheba's wife, Uriah, and killing him and taking him to the front line and indirectly murdering this man. Maybe it was this. Maybe that was the pit that he found himself in. He's like, Lord, what am I going to do with that? Or was it the pit of having enemies? It could have been King Saul. Or was it the pit of being betrayed by his own son? Actually, as you read on the latter accounts of David's life, he was betrayed by Absalom, his son, who tried to usurp him as king and rebelled against him. Can you imagine how awful that was to have your own son try and take your throne. I think it could have been illness. It could have been any number of things. I think it's helpful that it doesn't specify what the pit is. It's talking about the pit. And I think that this psalm applies to anyone who finds themselves in a situation in which no amount of self-help can lift them out of it. This pit is any situation you find yourself in in which your intelligence, your effort, your perseverance, your social contacts, your positive outlook cannot shift that situation. Whatever you are, whatever you do won't get you out of that pit. And the Bible speaks about literal pits. On several occasions, Joseph was thrown into a pit by his jealous brothers. They just wanted to get rid of him and then he got sold into slavery. Jeremiah the prophet was tossed into a pit by Israelite officials who couldn't stand any more his prophesying over the nation. They were like, shut up, Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 38 verse six, they lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud. And Jeremiah sank down into the mud. He literally sank. 
What a picture in the pit, sinking down into the muck, unable to change things, unable to fix things. Can any of you identify with this picture? Have you ever, any of you ever felt that you were just down in the pit, sinking into the mud? Are any of you there today, just thinking, that's me, the slimy pit? There are two situations that stand out when we're waiting for God in the pit. The first is when we're waiting for God to answer our prayers. One of the most frustrating places for us in a relationship with God in an instant society, those two things, in a relationship with God in an instant society is that God forces us to wait for answers to prayer. That's so tough. We might say to God, God, answer this prayer on this job. Make this this one interview the one that opens the doors. Lord, if, if I just had that, it would shift things. God, bring this person to know you. Fill in the blank. God makes us wait. And during this waiting time, God asks questions of you and me. Questions that we can't hear except when we're forced to wait. God speaks to our spirits and he says to us, will you continually accuse me of not caring about you? Because that's what happens when we are forced into the position of waiting. So often we're like, God, do you not even care that I'm still in this situation that I find myself here? Or not caring about your loved one. Will you continually accuse me of not being good or intending good? Again, that's what happens. God, you're not good. Will you constantly accuse me of playing games with you, promising and not delivering? Will you constantly, well, sorry, will you always accuse me of not knowing what's best for you, for this other person, for this world? During times of waiting, God speaks to our souls and says, will you trust me? Will you trust me? During times of waiting, God speaks to us and says, will you always try and tell me when and how I should answer your prayer. Will you always try and answer my prayer for you? We say, Lord, save this person and here's how you need to do it. God, heal this person. Here's the way that that's gonna happen. God, meet my needs financially and here's the specific door that you must open for me. Do you know what? It is not wrong to pray specifically. That is, please do not misunderstand me. To come before the Lord and be specific is not wrong. But... If we're not careful, we can get into this demanding, prescribing spirit. Are you trusting in this specific answer or are you trusting in me? We're living in a time more than any other, he says as a great wise sage, but with this idea of entitlement. It's the greatest thing that we see in our age is entitlement. I am entitled to X, Y, and Z. That is the spirit of our age, entitlement. It comes against, what happens is, it absolutely comes against God in this moment of waiting. But I'm entitled to this. It's like, no, we serve the Lord. And God is good and he's still God, even if this situation hasn't shifted. He's still good and he's still God. And sometimes that's just something that we have to break over us. Within the church, I think it's something, I think it's a massive thing entitlement and waiting really begins to sift our hearts and it begins to really ask questions of our souls it's very easy for our Christian lives to become roller coasters like this you move from hope to despair so quickly because you're setting your hopes on a specific person or a specific answer or a particular prophetic word rather than fixing your hope fully on God it's it's all about him It's all about him. 
So that's the first one. And then the second place, place that we find ourselves in the pet is when we're waiting for growth. In our instant society, we spend years pounding addictions into our life. And then we say, God, God, I'm ready to change. Change me today, right now. Break it. Have you ever been frustrated with God simply because your growth is too slow? You're like, I cannot believe that I'm still struggling with this five years on. I am. Sometimes I'm like, I, do you know what? I was having a session with my spiritual director on Monday and I was talking about, I'm still frustrated about that I haven't grown in this area of my life. I'm frust- we get frustrated. And I've got to be honest and, and tell you that churches like ours that do believe in healing, we do believe that God breaks in to this world, that heaven comes to earth and he radically heals people and that emotions can be shifted and addictions can be broken. I believe all of that. I believe that. But we can become unhealthy if our faith in the immediate intervention of God is not coupled with a constant emphasis that most change in people's lives comes about slowly. Step by step by step. That's how we see most growth. And we have to balance these two things of absolutely God can break in, he can encounter us in any moment and he can shift something. But at the same time, most of the way that God grows us is by being faithful step by step by step. When I invite people to come forward for prayer at the end of my message, my intention is to get you on the road of repentance, to get you to begin the journey of forgive, forgive, forgiving others or, or repenting. But it's a, it's, a, it's a rare thing for someone in five minutes to complete the entire transaction. God starts something. He starts a good work in our life. Sometimes he breaks something off. He's like, that needs to change. Do you know what? Sometimes people do leave absolutely free and I love to see that, but we need both and. We have to hold these two things in tension. Sometimes God will break an addiction there and then and it's gone. Other times we have to persevere. Most change is the result of a process where people intentionally commit themselves to the hard work of relying on God's grace and strength to help them change attitudes or change behaviours. Do you know what? Take reading your Bible. If you hopefully hang around here for long enough, we will be like, Joe, it's really, really amazing to read your Bible. And then next week we'll probably be like, be really amazing to read your Bible. It's something that we stand on. What is it that begins to shift in our soul is when we start to read our Bibles regularly, when we begin to fill ourselves with truth. Is that something profound that every moment we read the Bible, we have this profound encounter with God? No, I can absolutely tell you that does not happen. But I can guarantee if you delve into the word and you stand before the Lord and you'll say, Lord, open up the scriptures to me. I'm going to meditate on your word. I'm going to sit on these verses that I waited patiently for the Lord. Lord, show me what that means. If you go in with that attitude and I meet you a year later, I can guarantee that you will have changed. But will it have been faster and overnight? No, but it will have been amazing and it will have been step by step by step because reading the scriptures is like dripping the goodness of heaven into your soul. That's where like drip by drip by drip because what happens is it comes against a culture and suddenly the truth of God comes in and it confronts us and it's a beautiful thing and run over. Um, Christian growth is like the accumulation of wealth and weight loss. There are no easy one-step methods that's why I think something like Alcoholics Anonymous is so amazing. Because at least they're honest about the fact that there are going to be 12 
difficult steps. It doesn't, you don't go to Alcoholics Anonymous and think, do you know what, this is going to be so easy. It's like you're there because you've got an addiction and you want to see God break something. And they're like, this is going to be difficult. And that change is probably not going to happen alone. It's going to happen in community. So that's what's going on in that place. That kind of mindset is something that needs to be adopted by all of us. Thank God there is a day when we get to when we're going to be lifted out of the pit. We do get lifted out of the pit. We get to put our feet on a rock and on a firm foundation. Marriages do get healed. Emotions get changed. They shift. Things change, but it doesn't just happen in one moment most of the time. Just moving on, coming a couple more minutes. Moving into verses four and five. Blessed are those who make the Lord their trust, who do not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you've done, the things that you've planned for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. Suddenly he's just beginning to remember how awesome God is and the number of different ways that he's acted in the past. It's like, I couldn't speak of the amazing things that you've done because there are too many to declare. Waiting and delays are always a test of our trust in God. And there are two great alternatives to trusting in God and they're here in verse four. One is trusting in people and the other is going after a lie. I don't have time to unpack those because there's something in verse five that I want to look at. But if you want to look at those two things, do go back and do that. It says in verse five this, many Lord my God are the wonders you've done and the things that you've planned for us. I think that this phrase is so relevant for those who are waiting. It sometimes seems that God has no thought about us at all when we're waiting. We might even be like, God, have you forgotten me? You've forgotten me. I'm still here. Why have you forgotten me? The truth is that God has more plans and better plans for us than we could ask or think or imagine. I think of Joseph in the Old Testament when he was in the pit thrown there by his brothers. You sit there and think, oh, what a ridiculously hopeless situation. He easily could have been praying, God, get me out of here. When he was in the pit, when he's thrown into prison. So not only does he get into the pit, he gets thrown into prison on false charges. It would have been very tempting for Joseph to have thought, God has forgotten about me. There is nothing in God's mind towards me. He could have absolutely gone there. And yet all the while, while Joseph was in the pit and all the while that Joseph was in jail on these false charges, there were multitude of plans regarding what God had in mind for Joseph. And if you read on to the end of Joseph, you see this whole journey of how he's able to rescue his family and his brothers and a nation because the Lord has taken him from this place and his family and he had plans for Joseph. And in that moment, Joseph could have been like, God, I have no idea what you're doing. And then we look at the end of the story and we see Joseph in this position and we're like, oh, wow, that's incredible. He would never have been there if he hadn't gone through that. He wouldn't have got there. And these plans... God had extraordinary things in mind for Joseph and through Joseph the world. And I believe, I believe the same for us. Sometimes we're just stuck in that moment where we can't see beyond. But there's something bigger going on. Trust in the Lord's plan for your life and obey the Lord in times of waiting. Trust that he knows what he's doing. What happens when we surrender our lives to Jesus is we effectively say, I haven't got a Scooby what I'm doing in life. That's kind of the prayer of repentance. 
I haven't got a clue what's going on. And it takes that moment of humility. And, and that's why I often think that when we think about it, it's almost a moment when people get onto their knees. And in humility, they say, I don't know what I'm doing, but you do. That's really what salvation looks like. We get on our knees and we say, you're worthy of it all. You're worthy of it all, that you have a plan that is so much greater than my plan and I do not know, but yet I choose to trust in you. I trust that you know what you're doing through every circumstance, that my part is to be faithful in whatever the Lord has and that the Lord has a plan that is going on and I, I can't see it. I can't necessarily, because I'm too close, I'm too involved, but actually the Lord knows what he's doing and that one day, where is the destination? The destination's heaven and that one day we get to go and be with him. But for now, what is waiting about that we have to remember it is about the journey, not about the destination. It is that God stands with us in every single circumstance and he says, I'm with you. Emmanuel, God is with you. But he's with us. God spoke to me just in the worship this morning and he just gave me this verse that I, I felt was to finish the talk with. And it's Philippians 4 verse 11. It says this and it's down to 13. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. That's an amazing phrase. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living on plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. That is the key. And I do believe sometimes we're like, wow, that's so mind-blowing to even think about that, but that we can be content. Why? Because Jesus is in us. The picture I gave you is walking up the mountain. I don't want to walk up a mountain, but God is in every circumstance and that strength is in him. Why don't we stand and I'm going to pray.